worship with you and to look into God's Word. We're studying the Gospel of John, and that's where we'll be this morning. So if you have your Bibles or devices, you can turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, those of you who are joining us by live stream, thank you. Last two weeks, Pastor Tim has been preaching through the message of John the Baptist, John chapter 1, and his message, namely in that he was directing followers not to himself, but to, and I quote, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said a few weeks ago as well, that as he's preaching, he's preaching to a people that by and large weren't going to listen to him. The nation, in particular the leadership in Israel, would reject him. And John, the author of this gospel, says as much. Right? He came unto his own. The his own there is the nation of Israel. But his own did not receive him. And so John the Baptist is proclaiming a gospel Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they're not beholding. Or at least they're not beholding him. They're asking him, who are you? Are you a prophet? Are you? And John says, no, I'm, I'm not that. I am a messenger that was prophesied by Isaiah to declare the way, to prepare a path for the Lamb of God. And so today we're going to be in verses 35 through 42. Verses 35 through 42. And I quoted earlier from John 1.11, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But really, as we look today and then I would say into next week, we're going to be looking at what verse 12 talks about. Verse 12 says, as many as received him, who are they? Today and next week, we're going to be talking about following Jesus. I suppose if this were a class, and it's not, it would be following Jesus 101. What's it look like? We know what it doesn't look like based on John the Baptist's testimony, but what about those who would receive him? Those who, John says, would be given the right to be the children of God. So let's look in verse 35, and this week will be verses 35 through 42. All right, verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Wow, that sounds familiar. He literally had the same message that he had the previous day. Behold the Lamb of God. Did his followers forget what he said? I don't think so. I think they remembered. Did John forget that he had given that message? No, I don't think so. He remembered. He explained it quite vividly, actually. So what's he doing? Well, he's setting, really, the stage for those who followed John to become followers of Jesus. I, if you might think of it this way, and it might not be exactly this way, but it's kind of like, you know, you're driving in a vehicle, and, you know, this happens often in, in my family, where, you know, one of the kids pipes up from the back seat, hey, there's and like a favorite restaurant they want to go to or you know a place where they can get ice cream or something like that 
Yeah, there it is. You know. But then we drive by it the next day. And they say, hey, there's that restaurant again. I know they didn't forget that it was there. There's an implied message. There's the restaurant. Pull over. When John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God the second time, he's really communicating something else. Behold the Lamb. Follow him. doesn't say it in so many words. But behold the Lamb of God. And in verse 37, the, the two disciples heard him speak, and they what? They followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Or perhaps your translation might say, what do you want? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Let's pray before we go any further as we learn about what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you for the promise that there would be those who would receive him. I trust that that is true of each person in this room. If not now, then Lord, if it would be your will by the end of the day. Thank you so much, in Jesus' name. Amen. So John repeating this phrase, Behold the Lamb of God, he identified Jesus, he wanted his followers to follow him. Andrew and this other person, we surmise it might be John, like the author, follows him. And this person that they're following really makes sense. For them to follow. It, 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 it makes sense for Andrew and this other man to follow Jesus just because of what John the Baptist spoke of the day before. In verse, I believe it's uh, verse 30, he says, This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So it makes sense that these followers of John would follow Jesus. Why? Because he has a higher rank. But it also makes sense based on what John says in verse 34. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Behold the Lamb of God. This is the Son of God. Okay. So it makes sense that John is going to have his followers go and then follow Jesus. That says a lot about John. It says a lot about John the Baptist. And we'll learn more about that as we get to John chapter 3 and his disposition. Now some of you might be wondering, okay, so how does this reconcile with the other accounts in the other Gospels of the disciples following Jesus? I think it's really important that we at least bring attention. Maybe your brain didn't go this way. But maybe it did. Where Jesus is walking by the shoreline and he sees Simon and Peter 
Simon Peter and Andrew, and they're doing their fishing job, and he says, follow me, and they drop their nets and follow him. That's in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. How do we reconcile it with what's going on here? Well, really, from a chronological standpoint, what you have is an introduction of Andrew and Simon Peter to Jesus in John 1. They follow, but they haven't left their nets and followed him formally. Not just yet. This is their introduction to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Okay? So what I'm going to do here today is I'm going to use the text, point us to the text, and really look at following Jesus. The outline is simple. And it's in the form of questions. Questions that are appropriate for these followers that we're reading about, but also appropriate for you. First question. Jesus asks it. In fact, it's the first recorded question, the first recorded words of Jesus to his disciples. And we see it in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? That's the question for you. What are you seeking? Jesus knew what they were seeking. Jesus wasn't ignorant. He's not asking, wondering, I wonder what these guys are up to. He's also not asking a question, what do you want? He's also not saying, what do you want? Kind of like a Willy Wonka as the children enter the factory and he opens up all of the storehouse of chocolates and goodies as if he's just this divine, benevolent giver that has a blank check waiting to sign for all of his followers. It's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he's getting at them. He's getting at what they are looking for. You see, Jesus' question was less about getting information, and it was more about the motives of Andrew and this other man. To be fair, they were already disciples of John the Baptist. So by following John the Baptist, they were following orthodoxy. They were following sound teaching. And as a result, by being told, behold the Lamb of God, they were coming, and ostensibly they're following the Lamb of God. Now, Jesus here, later in this Gospel In John chapter 6 and verse 37, Jesus says that everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So when Jesus asks, what do you want? We don't have a disposition here of, I don't know if I'm going to bring you on. But, let's be careful. Because, yes, Andrew, yes, this other man, they were following John the Baptist. Their hearts were in the right place. Their motives were in the right place, to be sure. But not all followers of Jesus had that right motive. Not all followers of Jesus had a sincere desire to be the follower. In fact, just one chapter later, we read in John chapter 2 that there were many who followed Jesus, yet Jesus did not incline his heart towards them. Why? Because he knew what was in the hearts of men. That there would be some who simply come to have their bellies filled. There would be some who come to see a show. There would be some who are following the cult of personality. 
Andrew and this other man were being asked, what do you want? And what they want is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, not only is Jesus asking to address their motives, but he's also asking, what are you seeking? What do you want? Because he wants to have them state it forthright. State it. What is it that you're seeking for? State it. Now, the funny thing is they don't really. In this passage, verse 39 I'm sorry, verse 38, at the end of, uh, after he says, what do you seek? They say to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? They actually ask a question. So it's kind of like, okay, you got a minute? Where are you staying? And I don't know if this is a common practice for the followers to just follow their rabbis to their residence, but Jesus wasn't opposed to that. He says, come and you'll see. And so they stay the rest of the day and into even the following day. I personally think this other guy that's with Andrew is John because of this little little detail. It was the 10th hour. It was 4 p.m. Kind of like an eyewitness. He doesn't really name himself that he's the other man with Andrew, but he gives this eyewitness detail. He was there about 4 p.m. And it kind of lends itself to, to John and his way of writing in this gospel. So we think it's Andrew and John And they spend the day with Jesus. And Jesus opens himself up to them. And how we see Andrew responding is going in verse 41 to see his brother. And look at how they describe him. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. This is what one commentator says is the ultimate eureka. You ever heard that, heard that word, eureka? It means, I have found it. Okay? This was Andrew's eureka. He finds his brother. What are you seeking, Andrew and John? What are you seeking, person in this room? This first question of Jesus gets at the heart of what we really think about being a follower of Jesus. And ultimately, and I don't think this is a stretch, what we really think life is all about. What are you seeking? You know, up at the mall, they have those people that, that I, I think they still do. They have those people with the clipboards. And you walk out of a store and they're holding the clipboards. Let's just imagine two things, and this might be far-fetched. Let's imagine that we could somehow replace those people with the clipboards, number one, and here's the far-fetched part, that people would actually be inclined to coming up to us if we have the clipboard and actually answer the questions, you know? But let's imagine we have a clipboard, okay? And, And people are actually inclined to coming up to us. And we ask them the question, what's life all about? What kind of answers do you think you're gonna get? What is life all about? I kind of Googled this. Didn't kind of, I actually did Google this. <coughs> Clarify. Man, there's a lot of answers out there. Happiness, finding that one thing that's just going to make you happy, get you up out of bed. Maybe what's your why? Maybe you've heard that, that question, finding that happiness. Family, what's life all about? Life's all about family. Investing or enjoying the family you have, or maybe, 
Maybe making sacrifices so that future generations might enjoy their lives. That's what life's all about. Making the world a better place. I mean, seriously, don't we want to leave this place better than when we got here? We want to improve our communities. What's life all about? For some, for billions on the planet, it's just about survival. It's about protecting maybe family and loved ones from harm. That's what life is all about. You know, and this answer might actually be different for people of different ages. For some, life's about comfort and pleasure. I mean, carpe diem. For others, it might just be leaving a legacy. My days are numbered. What dent have I made on this planet? That's what life's about. You know what? I don't know what life's about, but when I watch the children and their simplicity, they can teach me what life's about. They can teach me. For the Christian, the answer to this question, what's life all about? For you, it's the same as the answer that Andrew and John would have given. It's Jesus Christ. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3. Because I don't want to just make that statement because it sounds spiritual and good. I want to make this statement because it's actually grounded in Scripture. Colossians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1. Therefore, Colossians chapter 3, therefore, verse 1, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. What is life all about? Colossians 3, 4 says, Christ is our life. We didn't sing the hymn this morning, but there's a song that we sing, All I Have is Christ. Many of you have sung it many times. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. True or untrue? For the follower of Jesus, what are you seeking? What do you want? Let's ask this question, but let's just give it some applicational teeth. Let's imagine that someone comes here that isn't a Christian, but they're really interested in what being a Christian is like. They come and they spend some time with us. Maybe hanging around the lobby. Maybe tagging along with some of you for a few days. And they spend time with you, this non-Christian. And they're wondering, what is this being a Christian like? What would they pick up from you? What conversations would they hear in our lobby week after week? What rhythms or patterns of your life would they see that helps them to arrive at the conclusion, aha, that's what being a Christian is like. It stands to reason that the answer to the question Jesus gives, what are you seeking, 
is the reason why we're following. Right? Because the answer to that question, what do you want, what are you seeking, that's why we're following. But if I could take that and maybe flip it on its side, or flip it, look at the other side, and say, we will choose not to follow, or we will choose to stop following when we don't get what we want, when what we want is what we're seeking. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. We'll choose not to follow or stop following if we don't get what we're seeking. This is fundamental. What do you want, Jesus asks. What are you seeking? This is what life's all about. And what's your life all about? And if you're not getting it, you'll stop following. But we know what Andrew and John's life was about, right? So this first question that we ask, what are you seeking? Okay? Following Jesus 101. What are you seeking? Second question. It's not in the passage, but I think it's... I think I, I, it's not stated explicitly in the passage, I mean. But second question I think we can get from the passage. And the second question is this. Who have you found? Who have you found? Notice the first question was, what are you seeking? But the second question is, who have you found? I do find that interesting that Jesus asks, what are you seeking? But the question that we follow up with is, who have you found? And the passage tells us who he found. First of all, he's called the Messiah, the anointed one. The Messiah, right? Back in uh, John chapter 1. If you haven't turned back there, go ahead. I will. All right. So verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him it was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found, his first, he found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Messiah is a Jewish term. Pastor Tim talked about this. Pastor Steve talked about this. This is primarily a Jewish term. And it's one that's kind of laden with political overtones for some. In fact, Jesus often doesn't refer to himself as Messiah. He does explicitly to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. But that's only because she alludes, she, she says, when Messiah comes, we know that he will. And Jesus says, yes, I the one, I'm the one who you're talking about. But, but here it's Andrew who goes to Simon Peter and says, we have found the Messiah. This is the person that John the Baptist explicitly said he wasn't. I am not the Christ, verse 20. And who the author said he wasn't. John, in verse 8, was not that light, but he came to testify about that light. This description of Jesus, we have found the Messiah, actually fits with the theme of the whole book. Right? John chapter 20 and verse 31. That's the theme of the whole book. The author, John, says these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So the reader here should be like, wait a second, Messiah. This is him. John's actually getting at the heart of why he's writing. Messiah. This is the Christ. 
And John, what he's doing here is not just pointing the reader to just this one title, but in just the first chapter of John, there's so many terms that John describes Jesus as. What he's doing is he's building the readers what we would call Christology. That's a really famous or fancy way of saying their doctrine of Jesus or their doctrine of Christ. Listen to how John describes Jesus in chapter 1. He's the Word. Talked about that. Creator. Verse 3. He's the source of life. Verse 4. He's the light of mankind. Verse 4. He's the Son of God the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 14. He's Messiah. Verse 41. Just talking about that. He's the Lamb of God. Said that twice. He's of Nazareth. He's of Joseph. Verse 45. He's the Son of God, verse 49. He's the King of Israel, verse 49. He's the Son of Man, verse 51. Do you think that the author wants the reader to understand who Jesus is? I think that's fair. So, who have you found? This is who you have found. Okay? But secondly... You've found someone who knows you. He knows your past, your present, and your future. You know, if you're familiar with this story, this is kind of one of these details that, like, you read it and you're like, okay, that's fine. You know, Jesus knows. He's, he's you know, seeing Simon Peter and Andrew, and, and, you know, he's just doing his thing, and they're going to become followers, and on we go. But it's really interesting what happens. Verse 41. He found first his own brother, Andrew did, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Andrew brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. No formal introductions. You're Simon, son of John. He does this later with Nathaniel. You know, you'll, you'll hear about that next week, Lord willing. But Jesus knows Simon before Simon has met Jesus. And not only that, not only does he know him, he knows him in the past, he knows him in the present, he also knows him in the future. He knows his future, which is funny because this is why he gives him the name he gives him. You're Simon, son of Jonah, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, or translated Peter. Or, in the Aramaic, rock. If you've had the opportunity to read through the Gospel of John... Peter is anything but rock-like. Maybe dense like a rock. <laughs> but not like rock, like one of the pillars of the church, one of the persons who would turn the word upside down, one of the persons. No. Jesus is speaking to Peter as to what he was going to become. So Jesus knows you, your past, present, and future, and closely tied to that, he's also one who is your authority. Now, don't miss this part, because this is fundamental to following Jesus. Name a person who, when they first meet somebody else, changes their name. I mean, normally, I'm not exactly sure how all the logistics went in, in the early church or the early, you know, the first century um, Israel. But I'm guessing that when you had an introduction, there wasn't the other person saying, I'm going to change your name. Like, who does that? What we do is, hi, my name is so-and-so. What's your name? 
No, Jesus goes to Simon and says, you're Simon, but you're going to be called Peter. We don't have any record of Peter arguing. <laughs> no, no, my name's Simon. Thank you. No, he, he doesn't do that. Why is this significant? Because Jesus had the right to alter Peter's name. Simon's name. In fact, earlier in this passage, when it describes Andrew, it says, this is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And, and you actually see Simon and Peter kind of working both together. When Jesus talks to Peter in the Gospel of John, and Peter's kind of blown it, he says, Simon. You know, thinking John 21, after the resurrection, after the great hall of fish, after they're sitting there on the shore and they're eating and Jesus says, Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? And Simon's reminded of what he was. But then, when Peter speaks something or does something that is, that is the future of, of what he would become, what Christ was making him, he calls him Peter. So you have like this joint, Simon Peter. You know, what he's becoming. But Jesus has the authority to do that. Now, not only does he have the authority to speak into Peter's life, someone he'd never met, and, and actually add to his name or change his name, he also has the right to determine Peter de Peter's destiny. This call would define his life, and it would cost him his life. Every God-fearing character in this chapter is going to lose their life as a result of this. John the Baptist, Jesus, Andrew, John, Peter, Nathaniel, Philip. This wasn't just, come join our happy gang like Robin Hood. This was, follow me, but it's going to cost you your life. Two weeks ago, we had World Mission Sunday. And in our Sunday school class, one of the, the missionaries that we support, Moises Campos, used an illustration. So he gets the credit for this. Okay? But I think it's a brilliant way and a very convicting way of looking at following Jesus. The illustration goes like this. He says, imagine that you have $50. And you have a boy or a girl come and say, hey, I'll pay you $50 if you do one thing for me. It's not illegal. You won't get in trouble. Nothing like that. Okay? I'll pay you $50 if you do just one thing for me. Okay? 50 bucks, that's, that's a good amount of money, right? So that person comes, they say, okay, so what do you want me to do? I'll give you $50 if you do one thing. Okay, what do you want me to do? Give it back. I'll give you $50 if you give it back. That is the heart of being a follower of Jesus. You don't believe me? Let's look at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. This is after one of those great Peter moments where he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Who do people say that I am? Peter says, You're the Christ. So in verse 34 of Mark 8, 
Verse 34, Jesus says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Everything about your life, God gets. How God made you, your body, your mind, your interests, your health, your career, your romance, your free time, your dreams, all of it. All of your life, God gets to spend because you've given it back. This is how Pastor Tim's admonition last week, you remember if you were here? How he could say, and as a pastor, as a spiritual leader speaking into lives, how folks for 30, 40, 50, 60 years can identify with Christianity and church and yet not be a follower of Jesus. It's because they don't trust the one who gave them their life to spend their life. They got the 50, but they're holding on to it. What we don't believe in those moments, what an unbeliever doesn't believe in those moments is what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. I am the door. By me... Uh, you start quoting in front of a lot of people. You mess it up. So I'm just going to turn there. John chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Fundamentally, hell will be filled with people who were given the proverbial $50 bill but felt like they could spend it better than God. And this isn't just, uh, well, I'll give 20 and then 20, and then 20. This isn't a take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, and over my life I keep rededicating my life to the Lord. No, this is a transaction at salvation. When I become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you become a follower of Christ, he gets all of you. Amen. And you grow into the realization of what that looks like. And sometimes you grow into understanding just how much it really costs you. And sometimes we blow it. And we act as if, nope, this is our 50 to spend. When in turn, he who loses his life for Christ's sake shall find it. And they shall find life more abundantly. Do you believe that? Or is this simply where you go from 10.15 to 11.30-ish on a week-to-week -week basis because that's part of your culture? Does Jesus have your life? Who are you finding? You or him? So question number one. 
What are you seeking? Question number two. Who have you found? Finally, who will you tell? Following Jesus 101, who will you tell? Now, to me, this is pretty obvious in the passage. You know, Andrew goes and finds his brother, Simon Peter. But before we get to that point, there's actually a few details in here that could be very easily overlooked. There's three parenthetical comments in this passage that are really important. Okay, back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, uh, we see one in verse 38. It says, they said to him, Rabbi, parenthetically, this translated means teacher. Okay, verse 41, we have found the Messiah, parentheses, which translated means Christ. Verse 42, you are called Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, parentheses, which is translated Peter. Now, an Orthodox Jewish Hebrew-speaking audience probably wouldn't have struggled with those things. But this was for a Greek-speaking audience. Greek-speaking Jews, but then also Gentiles. Do you know that John, the author here, is writing this not just for a church like yours or my, or, or, or a New Testament church to sit down and read? Like those New Testament epistles like Colossians that we just read uh, from recently, you know, that was written to a body of believers. But this was written to both believers and unbelievers alike. Who will you tell? John is writing to try to persuade unbelievers to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through his name. Okay, so that's going on, really, as part of the, the whole of the book. But specific to this passage, we also see what Andrew does. Now, in verse 41... Notice there's, a, there's a, a pretty significant word there. First, Andrew found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. We don't know much about Andrew. He's one of the disciples of Jesus. Honestly, we, do, we know more about Peter, his brother. know more about James. We know about John. Man, we even know more about Thomas. Andrew, one of the guys at the beginning, we don't know much about him. What we do know, though, and this is really interesting... John paints Andrew as a man that is constantly bringing people to Jesus. He does it twice. In John 6, where he brings the boy with the five loaves and the two fish to Jesus. And he does it in chapter 10, when he brings Greeks to come see Jesus. When Andrew shows up in the Gospel of John, he's bringing people to Jesus. Starting with his brother. And it points to the reality, and one commentator put it this way. The most common and effective Christian testimony is the private witness from a friend to a friend, a brother to a brother. In the next several verses, which we'll look at next week, Philip does the same thing with Nathaniel. He goes and finds a person close to him to relay the news. We have found the Messiah. Can I encourage you to take courage for those of you who are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are really close to you and find it a difficult thing. Sometimes, maybe this isn't you, but sometimes it's easier to share the faith of Jesus Christ that you have with a perfect stranger than it is that person that you've spent hours upon hours upon hours upon hours upon hours. I want you to be encouraged because of what we see in this passage, what Andrew did, but I also want you to be encouraged because of what we don't see in this passage. Guess who else had brothers? 
Jesus. Guess who else had close family members? Jesus did. Where are they? Now, that's not what this passage is about. It's fundamentally about Andrew and Peter following Jesus and this being the beginnings of the disciples, right? But what about Jesus' own family? And we really don't see his stepbrother James being a follower until after Jesus has ascended. We see them showing up, trying to get him out of a situation to where it looks as if he's just making a mess of his reputation or something, or they want to see him. Uh, he's causing a ruckus. But do you think that Jesus was ever as candid with his siblings as he was with Andrew? Because remember, they say, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and you'll see. And they stay the rest of the day with him. Do you ever think that Jesus did that with his siblings? I'm sure he did. Why are, where were they? And why I say we can be encouraged by this is that God holds us responsible to share, but he doesn't hold us responsible for the outcome. God calls us to obey. He doesn't call us to succeed. Why is it that Andrew can go to Simon Peter and say, we found the Messiah, and Simon Peter is right along with him. And yet Jesus had strife within his own biological family. They're nowhere to be found in any of the Gospels. He never flubbed his words, I don't think. Like, I don't think he had to go back and apologize. Oh, I just really came too hard on you. I was too strong. I'm sorry. You know, all of the things that we fret and worry about when, when God gives us the opportunity to share what means the most about us to people that mean the most to us. And they do. Like, these are the people that we call up when we find out we got a promotion, or we found out we're expecting, or we found out that we had some great success, and we have to tell someone. But these are also the people that are spending somewhere forever. Who will you tell? Because that is fundamental to being a follower of Jesus. Not just because Pastor Tim is really passionate about it and Grace Church of Manor does this discipleship thing, but because God's word commands it. Go and make disciples. Amen. We see this example. So who are you seeking? What do you want? Who have you found? And who will you tell? Really, there's two types of people in here. Followers of Jesus and people that we're praying would become followers of Jesus. Are you a follower of Jesus? What do you want in life? I'm not asking you if you know about him or if you acknowledge intellectually that he is who he says he is. But alluding back to the earlier illustration, does your life, in air quotes, belong to him? And then secondly, who will we tell? Who has God placed in our life, people that are close, that it's time to talk? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these men 
or they're fallen, they're going to make mistakes as we read uh, in the Gospel of John, the foibles of, of these followers of Jesus. I, I mean, I suppose Jesus could have called angels to come and do this, and, and they probably would have done a better job just because they wouldn't have been wrestling with their sin natures or anything like that. They proclaimed messages at other points in time throughout human history. They could have proclaimed this. They could have been his followers. But yet, Lord, you have seen fit to call souls in human flesh that have sin natures because you get the greatest glory when you change them. And you give them the greatest life when their life is no longer theirs. God, open the eyes of men and women in this room who believe facts about Jesus, but frankly, really want to spend their $50 the way they want. Open their eyes. Persuade them. And God, those of us who are in Christ, may we live according to that truth. What you have stewarded to us, or Lord, perhaps, what you haven't stewarded to us. May we rejoice. May we give thanks. But God, please, may we share the gospel. The greatest thing about our lives, what, gets, what, what gives us meaning and purpose. The person, not the religion, not the nice clothes that you wear on a Sunday morning. It's not that. Nothing like that. It's Jesus Christ. And, and that's got to mean something for followers of him. It's our eureka. We have found it because Christ has revealed himself to us. Lord, may this be the burden. And may it overflow in joy and love. Thank you so much for your word. In your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen.